All right, welcome back, everyone, to the O'Melveny podcast. We are talking today about clerking and about clerkships, and many of our associates have have clerked, are currently clerking. People do it at different times. Some people do it right after law school. Some people do it after working a few years. Certainly not everyone does it, and it's not a prerequisite uh, for a variety of reasons. It may not be something that, that you want to do, but a substantial number of our associates and partners on the litigation side have done clerkships, and uh, and we're here to demystify it a little bit because I know there's a, a lot of questions about the process and what it's like to be a law clerk and whether it's worth it to uh, to do it in the first place. And so to help us talk about that today, we have three amazing litigators and former federal law clerks. And I just want to say that there's two very exciting milestones in the O'Melveny podcast uh, today. Um, The first is that this is the first ever all live and in-person podcast we're doing here at the brand new O'Melveny podcast studio located in 3124A, which is a file room, uh, more of a closet, uh, uh, on the 31st floor here at O'Melveny. I hope you guys like the, uh, the studio. It's very deluxe. Yeah. And, um, and the second, um, and, and by the way, hopefully that will make the sound a little bit better than it's been um, for, the, for the prior episodes. But uh, um, the second exciting milestone is that we have our first repeat guest. Uh, Catalina Vergara, who is a litigator and the hiring partner in the downtown LA office. Uh, how does it feel to be a regular guest on commentator on the O'Melveny podcast, Catalina? This is really just the highlight of my <laughs> O'Melveny career. <laughs> I do want to assure everyone that I, I do actually have work to do. I don't just <laughs> go around, you know, sitting in on podcasts. Yes. But I'm very excited to be here and super excited to be here in 3124A. <laughs> What you can't uh, see for those listening out there is that there are two very large cookies here in the studio that I've used to bribe our three guests. Not that they're not interested in this topic, but um, as Catalina points out, they they are uh, quite busy. Catalina, as I said, is a a partner and our hiring partner in the downtown LA office, uh, and she was a law clerk to Judge James Selma in the U.S. District Court in the Central District of California. We also have Jen Sekoler who is a counsel here in our New York office. Uh, Jen is in our appellate group, but before joining the firm, uh, it's fair to say that Jen pretty much mastered the clerkship thing. <laughs> she did not clerk for every judge, but uh, she came about as close as you can. Uh, after graduating from Columbia Law School, uh, Jen clerked first for Judge Cote in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. Uh, she then moved on and clerked for Judge Robert Katzman in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, and then clerked for Judge uh, Sonia Sotomayor on the U.S. Supreme Court. So welcome, Jen. Thanks. And then finally, Anton Metlitsky, a partner also in our New York office. Uh, Anton, also a member of our appellate group, uh, and as with many of our appellate lawyers, often finds himself doing a wide range of litigation and counseling matters across a range of industries. Uh, Anton spent a few glorious years crunching numbers for a Wall Street bank (laughs) before heading to Harvard Law School. Uh, He then did clerkships for Judge Merrick Garland on the D.C. Circuit, who uh, was in the news a little bit last year, (laughs) that you may have heard. Anton then uh, moved on and uh, also clerked on the U.S. Supreme Court for Chief Justice John Roberts. So, welcome, Anton. Thank you. 
So I guess the first place to start is at a at a high level. I'm thinking about clerkships. Why why would you be interested in doing a clerkship? Um, what what makes somebody want to to do it in the first place? Catalina, for you, uh, why did you decide to apply to be a clerk? Well, that's a good question. I actually had been thinking in law school that I would love to clerk and had some professors who encouraged that. I went to Georgetown uh, Law. But I had taken three years off between college and law school and had this sense that I should really just get going with my life. And so I didn't apply in law school and actually started uh, working at a firm out of law school and realized almost immediately that I was really regretting the fact that I hadn't applied. So I applied what was then off-cycle, and I know that the timing is now different from what it was back then, a long time ago. I applied and was lucky enough to get a clerkship with Judge Selma. For me, the reason I wanted to clerk, and particularly at the district court level, is that I knew that I wanted to be a litigator and I wanted to understand what happens behind the curtain, how, how it works in chambers. And I certainly, um, my experience was incredibly valuable in that sense. I really learned a lot from the judge who was very generous with his time and learned from watching, not only reading litigants' papers and chambers and working up tentatives and rulings, but also from seeing litigators in court and seeing all the different styles that, that people use. So it was a, a very valuable experience. Did you intern for a judge during law school? I didn't, actually. So it was my, my first foray into chambers. And so was it word of mouth, or was there a professor that sort of um, gave you a little bit of intelligence on, on what to expect and, and whether or not it's something that you might be interested in doing? Yes, it was exactly that. Conversations with professors who um, had clerked themselves and who passed that along. And, and I see that at the firm now as the hiring partner. We have so many attorneys in our offices who've clerked and who encourage our summer associates and our junior associates to take those opportunities when they present themselves. So, Jen, you clerked starting right after law school, is that right? Yes. And it seems like there is a mix of sort of how that's done. Some people wait, some people do it right away. Um, you think there's a right answer on that? I don't think there's a right answer, but I actually would also say that I kind of wish that I had taken a year in practice before I clerked. In part because I think that a lot of what junior associates are exposed to, just sort of the daily routine of what it's like to run a case, seeing orders come on the docket, preparing for hearings, thinking about discovery, all of that you, you, you don't get a real feel for necessarily in law school. And so my first day in chambers was, was pretty shocking. You know, I, I didn't know what a scheduling order looked like. The parties were calling with discovery disputes and I didn't really understand what they were talking about. So um, I, I actually, I don't think there's a right answer. Obviously I, I had a great experience and it was wonderful and, um, and I did it straight through. But I think there is value in, in practicing first. And, and the other thing I would add to that is my understanding now is that just the application process is such that the timing of everything is different and it, and it makes it, in some respects, I think, easier to be a little bit more flexible about when you're willing or interested to clerk. I also think that judges increasingly are looking for clerks who have worked for a bit. So you're seeing that, whereas in the past, judges only took people straight out of law school. Now they're more open to that. And that makes sense. I mean, my experience was similar. I clerked for a district court judge uh, in the Southern District of Florida. And I, when I describe the learning curve, it, it, it sort of looks like a straight line, straight up. Um, and so having a little bit of experience beforehand, I think, 
can help. I think no matter which way you do it, the learning curve is going to be incredibly steep. Uh, but I can certainly, I can certainly see that. Uh, I, I I worked for a year before I quirked, and the other reason to do it is because I'm pretty sure you get paid more. Not is anymore. That, is that not yeah, true I anymore? Oh, I did. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was great. As much as you know, having your perspective is is valuable. <laughs> having Jen's more recent experience is, is seriously. Man, right, no, it was it was very it was obviously right old. Us. Um, is that right? Yeah, because my, my husband had the salary match as well. Ah, yeah. Um, so, so Kat, you mentioned, you know, knowing that you wanted to be a litigator and wanting to see um, the perspective of, of a judge. What if it is the case that you want to, you're thinking about becoming a transactions lawyer? Is it still worth it to consider a clerkship? I think so. We have colleagues on the transaction side who have clerked, and from my discussions with them, they found it very helpful also. I mean, other than learning the nuts and bolts of litigation, you develop a lifelong uh, friendship and mentorship with the judge for whom you clerk, um, with your co-clerks, with everyone in chambers. It's a very tight-knit environment. And so having the benefit of, in, in my case, having the benefit of Judge Selna's wisdom and insight, not only while in chambers, but since I left chambers, has been really meaningful in my career. And I would imagine that that would benefit even if people even if you are a transactional lawyer. And it's also just a great experience by itself, forgetting about how it sets you up for practice later. It's, you know, you get to work on the inside for a year, and if you're at all interested in law, which I assume most law students are, it's it's a pretty great way to see how judges actually work. Yeah. It's certainly not un unprecedented. I know we have a <clears throat> junior associate right now in our capital markets group that is leaving to do a Second Circuit clerkship, uh, and I have no doubt that, you know, she'll have an incredible experience and come back you know, with skills that are going to help her no matter where she ends up in terms of her um, in terms of her practice group. What about okay? You decided you want to you want to do this or are interested in do the, doing this. Anton, how did you decide where to apply? I pretty much to apply to everywhere. Uh, I, I had no geographic sort of limitations, and I was willing to go anywhere. I, I don't exactly remember how I picked the judges at in the end, but it was, a lot of it had to do with talking to professors and talking to, um, I, I think it, we applied when I, when I was at, at the end of 2L year or maybe at the beginning of 3L year. And so I, I would talk to people that were a year ahead of me that had just gone through the process and had known a lot about it um, and who they clerked for, who they applied to. And so it was, I, I, I don't remember how many judges I actually ended up applying to, but there I had friends that applied to like, you know, 150 or something, like basically everybody. And I think on that, some people um, have very definite views about how many judges you should apply to, and I feel like that's such a personal decision. If you have geographic limi limitations, then you know that's you're only going to apply in certain areas. If you don't and can apply elsewhere, that's great. But I remember professors or, or other people who had just gone through the process saying you really should only apply to X number, and that never Why? made sense to me. Like It's not like someone's keeping track if right. you really want a clerkship and you're able to apply um, across the board or to a, a large number of people, you should go ahead and do that. I don't know what you think, Jen, but my view is no matter where you clerk, there's going to be things that you take from it that are applicable to your practice no matter which geography you're heading back to or heading to afterwards. I mean, I clerked in Miami, as I was saying, 
And I basically applied in places that I would be willing to live in for a year and turned out to be one of the best, you know, professional experiences um, for me in, in my life. Do you think there needs to be a connection between where you clerk and where you see yourself practicing after the clerkship? No, I think the skills, as Catalina was saying, are like highly transferable and it's a really positive experience. So I was actually much more geographically constrained in where I could apply at the time. But I sort of in my head knew that that decreased my chances of getting a clerkship and I was prepared to, you know, wait and try again. Um, so I, I think that it is just sort of like what makes sense for you where, where you are in your life. But the writing skills, the the legal reasoning skills, the relationships, all, all of that. It, it doesn't really matter where you are. And in some respects, I, I have friends who've clerked in, in Puerto Rico. I have friends who've clerked in Montana. Um, and I think that those people had, I think, a really special experience, sort of not only having the unique opportunity to work with a judge, but also, you know, experiencing a different part of the country that they may have never had uh, significant exposure to. We have an associate in L.A. who just came off of a Ninth Circuit clerkship in Hawaii. And I'm so jealous <laughs> on so many levels. <laughs> so, yeah, I agree with you completely. One thing that you get a reunion, yeah. too. <laughs> exactly, an excuse to go back to the islands. Um, one thing that that I do think makes sense when you're thinking about where to apply is to do as much research as you can, talking to you know other law students or uh, attorneys at the law firms where you've clerked or professors about the judges themselves um, to try to get some intel. There are, you know, a clerkship, I think, is valuable no matter what, but there are certain judges who are known to be great teachers and great mentors. There are judges who are known to be very difficult to work for, and so it's just good to know that going in um, if you can do research on the people that you're thinking of applying to. And you mentioned, Jen, that, you know, you were prepared to try again if you didn't get a clerkship. I think that's um, an interesting uh, point because sometimes I think people apply their first opportunity, um, but is it is it true that that's not your last chance? In other words, if you don't if you don't succeed, is it is it possible that you could nevertheless find a clerkship later on? Definitely, I, I have had numerous friends who tried, didn't get what they wanted the first time, tried again, and had better luck for a variety of reasons. Right, like you've grown, you have new recommenders, you have new experiences. There's also things on the other side that, that you might not be aware of. A judge may have hired applicants for three years out and thought you were fantastic, but just didn't have a slot for the year that you were interested in. Um, so it just, um, there are so many factors here that you can't really control for. It's definitely worth trying again if it's something that's important to you. Just on the process, you mentioned uh, recommenders. Um, in terms of the letters of recommendation, do you, uh, are those professors? Are they practitioners? You know, is it better to have a mix? What, what's sort of the advice on that? I think the, the best recommender is someone who has a relationship with the judge and who is a known entity to the judge. So if that's a practitioner, great. If that's a professor, great. But it's someone who, when they speak about you, the judge is going to understand, um, you know, what that means because they, they know who that person is. And um, when's, in terms of timing, what's the first opportunity these days? I know the, the timing of this process has changed quite a bit since Catalina, Anton, and I went through it. Um, to the extent you know, what, what's the current <laughs> starting gun? So this has changed actually also since even um, I, I applied because the, the plan, this uh, mythical clerkship hiring plan that I think students now talk about longingly was, was still at least sort of pretend in place um, like it was being violated all of the time but at least it 
formally existed. Now I think people are applying after their 1L year. During their 1L year. During their 1L year. Sometimes, for the, I think for the sort of most competitive appellate clerkships, people that want to clerk right after their 3L year, people are, it's insane. They're applying in their second semester of their 1L year, as far as I can tell. One thing I've seen an uptick in is more people who ultimately want to clerk on the circuit applying for district court clerkships as well. Right. So... And I think that gives you sort of a little bit more optionality. Um, so I, that's just another. That's not to say, by the way, that everybody should be applying at the end of their 1-0 year. I mean, it really depends on the judge. It depends on when you want to clerk. It depends on where you want to clerk. It, uh, you know, I don't think there's necessarily any pressure to, you know, start getting <laughs> your resumes together now. No. But I think just, that's right. And I think that's another place where talking to professors who are in some cases close to judges can give you some valuable insight on, on what each judge's preferences are. What about, um, let's talk about different kinds of clerkships. Uh, you know, you mentioned applying to both trial courts and to appellate courts. Um, Catalina, you did a district court clerkship. Jen, you did every kind of clerkship that there is. <laughs> um, you know, what, what's the experience like as a district court clerk, at Catalina? And, you know, for somebody that's not sure if they have an opportunity to apply to, you know, to both, but, you know, maybe they want to focus on one uh, or the other, what, what would be some of the sort of attributes of a district court clerkship that somebody might be attracted to? From my experience, what I got out of my clerkship was really learning about the nuts and bolts of litigation, um, as you were referencing earlier, Jen. Um, understanding how cases work, how they proceed, the various steps along the way. And that's that's what I wanted to get out of it because I, I knew that I wanted to be a litigator and wanted to understand that a little bit better. You know, Jen, you can speak better to how you might think about uh, applying either for district court or circuit court clerkships. My judge actually sits by designation every year on the Ninth Circuit, so I, we got to sit for one cycle um, on the Ninth Circuit. It was really interesting to get a window into that, and it, it seemed incredible, <laughs> but certainly very different from a district court clerkship, both yeah. in pace and in, you know, subject matter. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're very different. So I think in, in the district court, you know, every day is an adventure. Um, you just don't know what's gonna happen when you show up at work in the morning, you have a to-do list, it rarely gets done because, you know, everything is just sort of coming through through the doors and in real time. And that was fantastic for all of the reasons that Catalina just mentioned. Um, and, and also really being a part of fact development um, and sort of shaping the, the findings of fact and uh, the framing of a case is, there's such an art to that um, and, and you really only I mean, you don't only get that in the district court, but I think the district court is a really unique opportunity to see how that work is done. The appellate court um, is much more focused on discrete legal issues as a general matter, more so at the Supreme Court than at the Second Circuit, but even at the Second Circuit. Um, and I think the other, and so it's, it has a lot more in common with law school. Um, it's a lot more like exactly. issue spotting and and what you sort of are already doing in your class classes, whereas I think the district court was kind of like landing on Mars in a lot of ways for me. One, one other thing that I think is different and that I didn't fully appreciate until I got there is the collaborative nature of, of the appellate clerkship. So, you know, my chambers at the district court was a very tight-knit team, and we all had each other's backs, and we were constantly thinking through issues together. But, you know, we had one judge. 
uh, when you get to an appellate court and you're working with a panel and you have three judges with three different views, that's a whole new environment. Um, and it's really, I think, exciting to see how these brilliant people, you know, first individually form their positions and then try to come up with a consensus view uh, that reflects the view of the court. Um, so that's a, another sort of distinct skill set. And what's the dynamic among the clerks? You know, so are you networking with clerks for other judges? Um, are you mostly, you know, just working closely with the other clerks you mean for the, your on judge the court of appeals, on the Court of Appeals? Yes. Um, I th- it depends a lot on the judge, in my experience. So some judges did not want their law clerks to talk to other judges' clerks at all. Some judges didn't want their law clerks to talk to other judges' clerks until the judge had decided what his or her view of the case was going to be, and some judges just didn't care. Um, so I think it depends a lot on the court and the chambers. I clerked on the D.C. Circuit where all of the judges are actually in the same building, which I think is unique, essentially, um, other than the Federal Circuit. Uh, which So we actually were... Every time you were on a panel with uh, two other judges, the clerks were sitting next door to you. So you had lunch with them, talk about the cases. It was really um, interesting opportunity to get a window into how other people are thinking about exactly the same legal issue. But it's definitely a collaborative, uh, collaborative process for sure. And what about at the Supreme Court level? <laughs> so in my experience, that was a complete free for all because um, <laughs> you're always on bunk, right? There's nine. There's nine law clerks working on every case. At least when I was there. I think everybody basically spoke openly to each other about the case. You're trying to figure them out, right? They're, by definition, hard cases, much harder um, than than you get on the Court of Appeals. So you're talking to a lot of people that are working on the same issue, trying to actually get to the right answer. Um, that, that was a really um, interesting experience, just trying to get nine people's views on on one question. In terms of the work itself, I'm, you know, obviously, I think every judge <clears throat> has, you know, his or her own, you know, way that they like to do things and the dynamic with with the, the workflow and the law clerks. But I'm curious, your experience, were you drafting, you know, um, orders at the at the trial court level, Catalina? Were you advising on um, trial um, rulings as they were happening? Um, how did that work for you? Well, it's certainly true that every judge is different, and just from talking to other central district clerks who were clerking at the same time as I was, you could you could see that, that every judge had a different process. My judge um, runs his chambers in a way that I think makes a lot of sense. He, uh, he has us draft, uh, working with him certainly, uh, tentative rulings that are posted on the Friday before every Monday calendar. And that gives the litigants an opportunity to think about the issues that are actually going to be important to the judge uh, over the weekend before oral argument. It focuses oral argument. It makes sense on so many levels. And so my judge didn't have us prepare bench memos, for example, didn't have us spend time on that. He had his work on the tentatives directly with him. But other judges followed what I think is the more traditional approach, I don't know what your judge did, Ellen, uh, of, of preparing bench memos that the judge would then review and mull over as, as he or she gets ready for, for the case. Yeah, we would prepare bench memos. And you know, one of the most valuable things about that process for me in terms of training to be uh, an associate it was it really forced you at an early stage to make recommendations um, and to be willing to 
A, do the work to be able to back those recommendations up, but to be able to communicate a recommendation to the judge, you know, that was based on uh, your, you know, analysis. And, and it, you know, I think it is an important training moment because, you know, one of our, you know, one of the things that we really want associates to do here is at an early stage, you know, be take ownership over their cases and uh, and the issues that they are working on, uh, because we, you know, that's, at the end of the day, that's what we do with our clients. We, you know, we try to solve problems with them. So we would draft bench memos, and then sometimes the judge would agree with us, and sometimes the judge would not agree with us. But it would usually spark a, you know, a fun and interesting discussion. Yeah, and the tentative process in our chambers served the same function, and, and it was it's so interesting to think through a case and to really focus on what the result should be and then have that conversation with the judge. The other thing that I wanted to note in terms of the work, um, and, and judges differ on this score too, I think, uh, Judge Selna had us work on civil matters, but he handled the criminal matters himself. Yeah. And some district court judges do that. Others have their clerks participate in both. If you're someone who has an interest in, in crim law and wants to work on those matters, that's another thing to research as you're looking at, at potential judges. Yeah, although I, and I will say my, my judge handled that similarly, although just being there, you inevitably are going to absorb, yes. you know, criminal law issues to, you know, because there are criminal trials happening or, you know, or habeas petitions, habeas petitions, exactly, suppression hearings, things like that, where even though you might not be asked to be writing the order or advising the court on what to do with them, you're hearing all the arguments, you're, you know, you're listening to what works well and what doesn't, um, and all the other things that, that come along with it. What about at the, at the Court of Appeals? What's the typical process for drafting a opinion? Yeah, so I, I never wrote a bench memo, neither, neither of... <laughs> Neither of the judges I clerked for, oh, um, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, neither of them wanted bench memos. Uh, we talked about the <laughs> cases, which was its own intimidating it's situation, very, very intimidating situation, <laughs> um, especially at the beginning of the term. And then if, if that judge was assigned the opinion, in both my clerkships, we would do a first draft, and then it would be a very iterative <laughs> lengthy process. Um, so in other words, the rec your, your recommended approach based on the discussion that you had would be sort of embedded in the draft that you put together of it, the opinion? It, it was sometimes. I mean, the thing is, when you're on a collabor collaborative court, you know, the judge might have one view, and then after conference with the other judges, you know, they, they come to some slightly different view, right? So one of the tricks, um, especially on the Supreme Court where you know, there are nine of them, um, so it's harder to get to a compromise that five will join, is actually trying to figure out what the court wants to say, um, which is in part what your judge wants to say, but also what can get a majority, right? Um, so there's, it's kind of an interesting process trying to figure out how to write for other people that you've never talked to about the case, you know? Is is there... But, but that's not tip, I mean, you, you wrote I wrote a lot of a bench, lot of bench memos. memos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wrote 90 page bench memos. I wrote yeah. 10 page bench memos. At all yeah. levels, Jen? Uh, no. So actually, um, my district court judge uh, does not do oral argument on dispositive motions. So we didn't do tentatives. Um, and actually, often I would not discuss a case with her until I had a draft opinion. 
like that was the opinion. Right. Um, and then it was an incredibly iterative process until we um, got got to where she wanted to go. But so that was there were no bench memos when I was uh, a district court clerk. Um, but then at both the Second Circuit and the Supreme Court, I wrote lengthy bench memos, which you know served as a useful tool regardless of what the court decided. When I was drafting an opinion, I had sort of all of my research in a in a way that was you know readily accessible to me and and could be tweaked in whatever ways it needed to be to reflect the court's decision. Did you ever find yourself writing a draft of a order or an opinion that needed to come out a certain way because that's the way the judge wanted it to come out that you yourself might have thought, you know, you would have decided differently? Oh, yeah. <laughs> sure. Those were, for me, the most fun ones. Um, I think that's probably, I mean, you would know better than I, but I think that's probably more common at the appellate level because at the district court, I feel like you know, there's less opportunity for what some people might call policy making or, you know, interpretive right. um, opinions, or whatever. <laughs> you call it. Um, so I don't know. It, it's more balls and strikes. Yeah. Court. I think I think the higher right you get in the court system, just the harder the cases are, right? Yeah. Uh, right. Mo- I mean, there's, but not to say that there aren't incredibly hard district court cases, right? So I, I just think it probably as a percentage of your total caseload is much lower because most mm-hmm. most cases are probably just governed by clear precedent. I would even say in my appellate clerkship, like the the number of truly yeah. hard, very you few. know, very controversial cases I could count on one hand, whereas every case at the Supreme Court is hard and controversial. And right, it's by definition almost because right. courts have split on on the question. I remember one case where um, it was it was a close call on a motion um, for. Uh, summary judgment and my recommendation was that we should go one way because although I wasn't sure that was the right you know that was the result we wanted it seemed like that was where the 11th circuit was pointing us and um, the judge took a different view and uh, you know I wrote I'd spent a lot of time writing that order because um, it was sort of as is common I think um, known that if if the, the judge gets reversed on a, an order that you write, um, you know, you'll, you'll be hearing about it in a, in a good-natured way. But so I was really trying hard to, you know, to make sure that uh, that, that didn't happen. And about and a year after I got back to the firm, I got a call from the judge, and he said, "I want to read you from this, read to you from this opinion that I that I just got from the Eleventh Circuit." And it says, "In a reasoned and you know, <laughs> and you know, well-written order, the judge you know came out this way." And I was starting to feel pretty good about myself. And he said, "But the problem is that was from the dissent." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So uh, that that can happen. So okay, the clerkship comes to an end, and it's time to head back to a law firm. What was one of the challenging parts about transitioning back to being a law firm associate as opposed to being a law clerk? For me, the hardest thing was remembering how to write as an advocate again. I had gotten used to writing uh, on behalf of the court in what was more more of a neutral tone. And in the first months after I came back to the firm, um, it felt a little uncomfortable to uh, to write as an advocate. It felt like I was stretching a bit, but that you know you get used to that over time. That that was the, the really the only difficult part about transitioning back for me. I that think and, and not being drunk with power that I'm <laughs> a designer. 
I think also um, not jumping to conclusions in, in a certain sense. So, you know, just because emotion isn't likely to win doesn't mean it's not in the client's best interest to file it. Um, and so, you know, to my mind, if, if an idea came up for like a motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment, I might say, well, but, you know, because I jumped to sort of clerk mode, like that's not consistent with the 12B6 standard. Like that, 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 you know, really this complaint should not be dismissed. It's plausible. But as a, and particularly if you're, you know, in a defense posture, uh, that's not necessarily uh, the right answer for your client. Um, at least not, you know, where you should, where you should start. Um, you should like think through systematically every possible argument you can make before you get to that point. Were you able to take things from um, your clerkship experience? I mean, we've talked about some of them thus far, but you know, and apply them sort of immediately when you got back to, to being an associate. Um, whether I mean, just by the very nature of the job, right? You're seeing lawyers operate. You're reading the briefs that they write. Some are good. Some are maybe not so good. I mean, you're seeing people argue. You're seeing people how how people treat sort of the judge and you know, in their chambers. Um, what were some of the things that you sort of took with you into your practice when you started as an associate? I think the biggest thing is writing. My writing skills improved just tremendously over the course of my clerkship. I think really having judges who take the time to edit, give feedback, give you a chance to sort of go back and um, revise your own work to reflect their their views and input um, is is invaluable, um, and I rely on, on those skills every single day. Same for me, and it wasn't just um, writing a ton and getting that great feedback, but also seeing the writing that comes before the court that was so helpful. For, for me, even to this day, I'm loath to use bold italics underlying, <laughs> because you learn as a clerk that if you get a brief that looks like a ransom note, it probably means that the argument isn't particularly strong. <laughs> the, 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 other, the other thing that has definitely stuck with me is uh, when you have a brief, an appellate brief, that raises nine issues, that's not good. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's like required in some cases, but you know, the idea that yeah. if, if the advocate can, can focus the court on a few good issues, mm -hmm. I know you think you lost a hundred different things. That's may or may not be true, but the Court of Appeals will not care. Yeah. Um, and they'll stop paying attention, you know, even worse. Another um, related point to that is um, all three of the, the judges that I worked for had this incredible ability to cut to the heart of a yes. legal question. They would figure out what everything turned on, focus on that, and that, I mean, that is a skill that I'm still hoping to develop and to the extent that any of them have it, but um, it is something to aspire to. The other thing that I took from clerking, to go back to your earlier point, was getting to see so many litigants in court and so many different styles and to realize that there are so many effective styles and really the best way to advocate for your client is to use the style that's most authentic to you. I think as a very young, well not very young, but junior lawyer I guess, <laughs> I assumed that to be a good litigator you had to have this like big litigator personality and I found through observing um, litigants in court that there's just really a range of styles that can be very effective. Yeah, I agree. Um, are you all still in touch with your various judges? Yes. Yes. Yes, I had lunch with Judge Selna last week. It was really <laughs> nice to be back in chambers. I'm having judge, uh, lunch with Judge Katzman next week. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and same for me. It's a 
still a very much a mentor to me. And it's nice to have, I think that in each chambers, at least in almost everyone that I've heard of, there is a community of law clerks, former law clerks, um, that is a, in addition to your, you know, your law school and your law firm is a nice um, networking community that you have coming out of your clerkship. All right. Well, thanks everyone. Thanks for listening to the Clerkship Podcast. Catalina, until next time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks again, guys.